reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark in the ninth chapter, verses 1 through 13. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they please, as it is written of him. This is God's holy word. Thank you for reading that, Angela. Uh, A couple years ago, before our oldest son was born, my wife and I went on what us millennials like to call a baby moon. Uh, similar to a honeymoon, but it's before kids are born. Uh, it's kind of one last big trip because it's hard to travel with kids. There's a lot of variables. It's more expensive. And uh, my wife and I were talking um, about going out west. And we didn't know where to go, if we were going to go to California or Colorado, but we knew we wanted to go out west. And so we did what any American does when they're trying to figure something out. We Googled it. And we looked at blogs. We looked at top 10 lists. And the place that kept coming up is on the screen is Zion National Park in southern Utah. And so as we were kind of trying to figure out what kind of trip to take, that's where we landed. No matter where we go, no matter what we see, we have to go to Zion National Park. It looks beautiful. It looks amazing. And if you care about our itinerary, we ended up flying into Vegas. Then we hit the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Then we did Bryce Canyon and Zion National Park in southern Utah and Salt Lake City and Yellowstone. It was an amazing trip. But our favorite place was Zion, true to the blogs. Zion was amazing. And uh, there's nothing like... Uh, rolling up into Zion National Park, if anyone's ever been there, uh, in our rental car, a little Volkswagen uh, Beetle. was hilarious, traveling out west in a Volkswagen Bug. But we roll into Zion National Park, and it was absolutely breathtaking. And if you've ever been to a place like that, you know that a picture just doesn't do it justice. That we had seen picture after picture, read blog after blog, and seen all of the places on a computer screen, beautiful scenic views, but it was a whole different ballgame to see it in person. 
And what I want to talk about this morning is an idea of it's, it's one thing to see a picture of something, maybe a partial image, a partial glimpse. It's a whole other thing to see it in person, to experience it for yourself. I also think that that's true of us relationally. You can know a lot of facts about someone. My favorite athlete is Michael Jordan. I know a lot of facts about Michael Jordan. But I wouldn't say that I know Michael Jordan. You might have a favorite actor or actress that you know a lot about, you have a lot of head knowledge about, but you don't have like a personal, intimate relationship with them. And isn't that also true of us spiritually? For many Christians, we know and are familiar with Bible verses and God's promises that we can cast all of our anxiety on the Lord because he cares for us. We know intellectually that God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. We know these things intellectually, but it's a whole different thing altogether when a loved one gets cancer. When your life is shipwrecked and the direction that you thought your life was heading in, your hopes and dreams end up taking a very different direction. It's a whole different thing altogether when you or a loved one is struggling with mental health and in the pit of despair and depression. It's a whole other thing altogether when you're on the precipice looking at a life-altering decision and the anxiety that comes with that. What I want to talk about this morning is the huge difference between us knowing something intellectually, you could say head knowledge of something, versus knowing something experientially, heart knowledge. In fact, a major theme in the Gospel of Mark is this very idea, this idea of what does it look like to know Jesus? And all throughout the Gospel of Mark, the disciples and other folks are asking asking of Jesus, who is this? Who is this man Jesus? In Mark chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but there's a beautiful story of four friends bringing a paralytic to the feet of Jesus. If you remember the story in Mark 2, four friends carry a mat with a paralyzed man and they go see Jesus. They go to the house that he's teaching in and there's no room left because crowds are always following Jesus wherever he goes and they climb up on a roof and they rip a hole open in the roof and they lower the mat the paralyzed man's laying on and they lay this man at the feet of Jesus. In verse 5, Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the teachers of the law, the scribes are there and they ask this very question. They say, who is this? Who do you think you are that you can forgive sins? And Jesus, the scriptures say, perceived in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. And he turns to them, he says, hey, so that you may know that the Son of Man, who I am, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to this paralytic, get up, take your mat and walk. The paralytic gets up, takes his mat and walks out in full view of them all and they're all amazed. Who is this one that can forgive sins? In Mark chapter four, Jesus is with his disciples crossing over the Sea of Galilee and a furious storm's come. The wind is beating against the boat and the rain is pouring down and the waves are crashing into the boat so much so that it's nearly capsized and the disciples are terrified. And where's Jesus? He's asleep in the stern on a cushion. And the disciples are frantic and they wake Jesus up and they shake him and say, Jesus, don't you care? Teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? And Jesus Christ, groggy-eyed, gets up, walks to the edge of the boat, looks into creation and he says, quiet, be still. He speaks into nature and it listens to him. In an instant, the Sea of Galilee is absolutely calm. And the disciples in Mark 4.41, they look at each other and they ask that question of who is this man? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is Jesus? Who are you? I'm sure they thought similar things in Mark 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish. Who is this that's powerful enough to do this miracle? Who is this that treats widows and orphans with dignity and respect? Who is this man? And all along in Mark's gospel, it kind of flips in Mark chapter eight. The gospel flips and Jesus takes all of these questions of who is this, who are you, who, who are you? And Jesus flips on them in Mark eight, what Evan preached on last week. As Jesus is walking with his disciples through Caesarea Philippi, which is really pagan central of the ancient world, Jesus asks them, hey, who do other people say that I am? 
what's the scuttlebutt? What's the word on the street? Who do, who, what are people saying about me? And the disciples say, you know, some people say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, other people are a great prophet. And then Jesus, like a master teacher like he is, takes a really abstract, far out there concept and boils it down, he narrows it down, and he looks his disciples in the eye. And he asks what I think is the question of all questions, what about you? Who do you say that I am? I think that's the most important question we could ever ask ourselves. What about you? What do you make of Jesus? Who do you say that I am? And in Mark chapter 8, Peter, the spokesperson for the entire group, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And then Jesus, right after that declaration of Jesus' Messiahship, what Emmett, or not Emmett, it's my son's name, what Evan talked about last week, uh, Jesus starts talking about how he must suffer and die. And the gospel hinges on that. But here's what I want to look at this morning and why I took 10 minutes to kind of, kind of flesh this out. That in Mark chapter eight, the disciples have the right answer. They get the right answer on the test, right? That Jesus is the Christ. They get it right, thumbs up. They got the answer right in Mark chapter eight, but they didn't know what that was gonna look like. They expected a conquering king, that Jesus was gonna ride in on his white horse and kick butt and take names and overthrow Jerusalem, overthrow the Roman Empire. But they didn't expect Jesus to come as a suffering servant. And in Mark chapter nine, what Angela just read, Jesus attempts to move the disciples from mere head knowledge of getting the right answer that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is gonna show them experientially without a shadow of a doubt to reveal himself of who he is. For my concrete thinkers and note takers out there, as we read through Mark chapter nine, uh, just a quick slide on the screen. This is a little bit of an outline of where we'll go. For the first eight verses, we'll look at knowing Jesus, what it looks like to know him, not just know about him, but to actually know him in a deep, intimate way. And we'll ask the question, who is he? And then in verses 9 to 13, we'll look at following Jesus and ask the question, where is he going? And at the end, I'll just break down what I think are a couple practical implications of this passage um, as we wrap up. For my abstract or conceptual thinkers out there, as we walk through the passage, I'll tr- Mark is really quick and brief. There's not a ton of details in the narrative. But if you're kind of an abstract thinker, I'll try to kind of fill in some details uh, with our imagination so um, you can experience it maybe in a little bit different, different way. Uh, so Mark... Nine, uh, starting in verse two is gonna be on the screen. I encourage you to open up a copy of God's word because I'm gonna start and stop and, um, a little bit so it'll be more helpful to, to have it in front, open in front of you. So this is Mark chapter nine, starting in verse two. So that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. This six days here, Mark usually in his gospels just says immediately or then or after that. There's really no kind of rhyme or reason. These events just happen chronologically. But I think the, the author, John Mark, wants us to compare what happens in Mark 9. The reason why he gives a timestamp six days is because he wants us to compare it and read it in context of what happened in Mark 8. That's why I gave that intro. So Jesus takes them, Peter, James, and John. It's interesting in a really human way. It means that he leaves the other nine disciples behind. I don't think Jesus is being exclusive. I don't think he's being a jerk, but the other nine are there and he takes Peter, James, and John. It's Jesus' inner circle, his three closest friends. And they go up a high mountain by themselves. Most scholars think that the mountain that they're talking about is Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet tall. If anybody in here is a hiker, of which I am not, I'm from Ohio, which is like the flattest place in the world, Uh, but 9,000 feet is a really high mountain. And there's a beautiful human dynamic that Mark doesn't, expand on it a ton, but they, they climb up this mountain. And what the scriptures don't say is, did they bring snacks? What kind of hiking shoes did they wear? What do they talk about on the way up? Is this a silent retreat, or are they talking theology? Are they talking sports? Like, wh- what's, going, what's this walk on the mountain like? Is it hot out? 
are they in good shape? Are their quads on fire? Do their calves, like there's a really beautiful human dynamic as Jesus takes his disciples on kind of this small group field trip to go up the top of the mountain. They get to a place, I don't know if it's the summit, the scriptures don't indicate, and if it's the summit or if it's just a spot that Jesus deems the right spot, but it says that he's transfigured before them. It's a word that we don't really use in our lexicon very much. The, in the original Greek, the original language, says that he was, is the word metamorphosis, that he was essentially metamorphosized in this moment, that he totally changes. And the scriptures say he becomes radiant and his clothes become white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there's an important distinction to make here that Jesus doesn't become for a second in this moment something that he's not. He doesn't like become glorious, become divine, become radiant, and then kind of like transform back into poor old casual Jesus. That in this, in this picture, it's important to note that he merely in this instance has his outward appearance reflect his inward glory. That in this moment, the transfiguration, his outward appearance reflects his inward glory, which I think is really, really important. The first kind of point here as we look at this question of what does it look like to know Jesus? Who is he? Who is this man? Thought number one is that make no mistake about it that Jesus Christ is the incarnate God. That's what the transfiguration teaches. He doesn't reflect God's glory. He actually is God's glory. Jesus is, like, doesn't reflect the radiance of God. He is bona fide 100% the glory of God. The scriptures say it a different way in Hebrews 1, and he says this. He says, how can you live with do the right thing? Jesus Christ claimed to be given more. Elijah and Moses appear on the scene, and they're talking with Jesus. And again, the scriptures don't indicate, Mark doesn't say what they're talking about. If they're talking about heaven, how great heaven is, if they're talking kind of with camaraderie about the Old Testament and their battle stories and how they overcame, like, I don't know what they're talking about here. It would have been really cool to be one of the disciples and just kind of listen into a conversation of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah but Peter in verse five has maybe the understatement in all of human history. He says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. I'd agree with old Pete on that one. Uh, it's good that we're here. And he suggests, let us make a tent. Uh, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Some scholars think that this is like a really practical solution, that the sun is hot out there and Peter's offering a practical solution. Let's set up kind of three different shelters. If we're gonna be here for a while, you know, maybe we can get some food and get out of the sun. That might be one answer. There's a, there's a different kind of answer to this uh, Peter's question of let's build some tents uh, and it connects uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Booths and so Peter's making like a, could be making a profound Jewish point here uh, in parallel but I think verse six just illuminates it a little bit because Peter doesn't know what to say because he's terrified. He's kind of caught up in this moment and then in verse seven to even uh, kind of bring it one step higher. It says, a cloud overshadows them and a voice comes out of the cloud. God Almighty speaks out of this cloud. And he says, this is my beloved son, speaking of Jesus, not speaking to Moses, not speaking to Elijah. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. Quick backstory on Moses and Elijah. If you're not familiar, Moses is arguably the greatest prophet in all of the Old Testament. He rescued the Israelites out of Egypt and kept captivity and slavery. God used him to part the Red Sea and like literally lead a few million Israelites to safety. He wrote uh, the first five books of the Old Testament and he was just an unbelievable prophet. Elijah similarly was a great prophet in Israel's history. He was a deliverer and famously he didn't die. He didn't die an earthly death. He, God just stands alone. Jim Rayburn, the founder of Young Life, um, where I work, he has a great quote that I love. He says that Jesus Christ is the only person that you can talk about without fear of it. He stands alone. 
As we keep reading in verse 8, I can't help but laugh at how quickly Mark moves on to the next thing. So there's kind of like this unbelievable moment with the transfiguration and the radiance of God and Moses and Elijah in the glory cloud. And then verse 9 starts, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them not to tell anyone. I think that's like a hilarious transition. It's like, was Jesus like, oh my gosh, it's time to go. We gotta get, like Mark doesn't fill in any of those details. And I think in, uh, in a beautiful way, Mark doesn't include those details because I think, I wonder if he's trying to communicate that Jesus' mission isn't to stay up on the mountain. Jesus' mission as he sets his face for Jerusalem, that Jesus' mission is down the mountain to the cross. That the disciples can't just stay up there with Jesus, that there's a mission to do. Jesus Christ's mission is to go down the mountain to the cross. And so as we look at what is Jesus' mission, where is he going, point number two is that the way of the suffering servant is the way to the cross. And also, crucially, what Nathan just said too, it's also the way of the resurrection. The way of the suffering servant, where is Jesus going? And if we are to follow him, the way of the suffering servant is to the cross and the resurrection. As we keep reading in verses nine to 13, they head down the mountain and Jesus gives them a strict warning not to tell anybody what they've seen. And in verse 10, again, a beautiful human dynamic the disciples, the three of them, keep the matter to themselves, but they question what this rising from the dead might mean. They're like understandably confused and kind of, hey, did you, are you understanding all this, what just happened? In verse 11, they ask Jesus, why do the scribes say that the, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? In order to kind of understand that, Malachi 4 is on the screen, which is a, uh, a prophecy from God, from the book of Malachi, where God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with with a decree of utter destruction. And so when the disciples in verse 11 say, hey, the teacher of the law describes kind of the word on the street is that before these end times that you're talking about, that Elijah's gonna come, come back first. That's what they're referring to. And in verse 12, Jesus says to them, Elijah does come first which we'll talk about in a second. Elijah does come first, but then Jesus again is constantly steering the conversation that it's written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, they did to him whenever is pleased as it's written of him. Elijah, in, in this case, kind of the parallel to be drawn here that Jesus is overtly, or not overtly, but what he's saying is comparing John the Baptist as kind of Elijah 2.0. So when Jesus says Elijah has come, they did to him whatever he wanted, He's referring to John the Baptist who came wearing camel's hair just like Elijah and he ate locusts and wild honey just like Elijah. And when Jesus says they did to him whatever they wanted, that's a reference to Mark 6 where Herod the Tetrarch has John the Baptist beheaded because he made a dumb bet with a family member and wanted to look cool in front of his friends and so beheads John the Baptist and that's what Jesus is referencing here. It's interesting to me that John the Baptist was despised and rejected and killed by men. And that parallels in a lot of ways what happened to Jesus. Jesus Christ was despised. He suffered. As Isaiah 53 says, that he was a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief. And his mission was to go to the cross. But here's a, a crucial distinction. So Jesus Christ wasn't just rejected and despised and killed by men. That on the cross, Jesus Christ was forsaken by God the Father. That God Almighty turned away from Jesus Christ as he took on the sins of the world on the cross God Almighty turned away from him to pay the penalty for sin so that we might be able to enter into a relationship with God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 about this point, it says that God made him, speaking of Jesus, God the Father made Jesus who knew no sin, 
that on the cross he might literally become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus Christ died, God turned his eyes away from him so that we might be able to have the opportunity to be brought into a right, right relationship with him. If we are to follow Jesus, we're to follow him to the cross. That's what following Jesus means, to follow him into death. But here's the beautiful part that we can't miss. It also means following him into resurrection and new, newness of life. Revelation 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible, paints a beautiful picture of the last day. It says that on that day, Jesus Christ is gonna come back and he's gonna make all things new. A day that I think as human beings we hunger for. Revelation 21.4 says that there will be a day where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Or there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more heartache, no more depression, no more broken relationships, no more broken dreams. There will be a day where Jesus Christ will make all things new and he will make all things right. And we long for that day. Following Jesus means following him into his death, following the suffering servant to the cross and through the resurrection. There's another slide up on the screen just kind of trying to tie some of these thoughts together that I think are really helpful when we look at knowing Jesus, not just knowing about Jesus, but when we look at knowing Jesus, experiencing him, living life with him, I think that helps us to follow him more, to trust him more. In this beautiful cycle, when we follow him and trust him more, then that helps us to experience him more and we know him better and we love him more and we have more intimacy with him and when we have more intimacy with him, then we're willing to follow him more and trust him more with our entire lives. And then we've, like, just this beautiful cycle. You know, I think a lot of times, at least, at least for me, a lot of uh, high school and college students that I talk to you think that following Jesus means selling everything that they have and moving to a distant country. And for some people, that's, that might be true of them. Praise the Lord for folks like that. But I think for some of us in this room, maybe many for us, it might be something even less glamorous than that. It might be sending an encouraging text to a friend or to someone that you know is struggling and saying a prayer for him. That might be what following Jesus means. It might mean setting your alarm 15 minutes earlier to spend some uninterrupted quiet time with the Lord and trusting him that if you get seven hours of sleep or seven hours and 12 minutes of sleep, that God's gonna take care of you the rest of your day. And if you trust him in that, maybe you'll know him better and he'll be there for you and he'll reveal himself to you and then you'll trust him and follow him more. Maybe you feel like your life is crazy and you can't possibly fit another thing with work and family and friends and trying to work out every once in a while that, that your life is just so full. Man, I can't possibly add another thing. I can't join a small group. I can't join an accountability group. There's no way I can, can add a, a Christian thing to my life. Maybe it means trusting God and saying yes to a small group, a community group, Sunday Bible study, an accountability partner, even if you feel like you don't have time to. You know, I'm not sure what it looks like for you to follow and trust Jesus. That's really between you and the Lord. But I do know that following and trusting Jesus helps you to know him more. Not just know him intellectually, but to know him in the deepest part of who you are. And so again, the question this morning, do you know him? Do you know this one, Jesus? So far we've looked at who Jesus is. We've looked at where he's going to the cross and the resurrection. And for the last 30 minutes or so, I'm just kidding, it's not 30 minutes. For the last few minutes, um, I'm thankful that Beck got a laugh. Um, for the last few minutes, I want to talk through a couple implications that I think are helpful from this passage. The first one that's on the screen is that spiritual highs don't last, but Jesus does. Spiritual highs do not last, but Jesus does. Uh, this is an encouragement not to chase a mystical experience. Maybe you've been to camp or been to a conference and that you just kind of live your life. Man, in two years, when I get to go back to that conference, then my faith will be alive. But for the next 700 days, I'm just going to be down in the valley. It's like, that's, that's crazy. 
Don't pursue a mystical experience, pursue a person. I love the story of Peter. In Mark 8, he's the first person in recorded human history to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And I imagine Peter getting home, you know, after that day of work and, hey, honey, so how was your day? Well, you know, it's a good day. What made, what made it good? I confessed Jesus as the Christ. Wow, that sounds like an amazing day. What made it just okay? Well, a few minutes later, he called me Satan, you know, in Mark 8, get behind me, Satan. It's crazy. And then right after that, he, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the transfiguration. It's like maybe the most profound experience that Peter's ever had in his entire life. And as it'll get preached on next week. After the mountain, when they come down, the next passage in Scripture, the, the disciples are met with Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. It's the next title. That Jesus comes down to the failure of the other non-disciples. They're not able to cast out the demon. And then Peter betrays Jesus, and then he dies on the cross. And it's like just this unbelievable. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, or if you're just a living, breathing human being, you know that life is a roller coaster. So the encouragement is, is don't, spiritual highs don't last, but Jesus does. Don't pursue a mystical experience, pursue a person. Number two, uh, listen to Jesus because you're prone to forget. It's interesting in verse seven, the glory cloud says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That's the instruction that God gives. Listen to this one, Jesus. I just wrote down, you know, I think it's important to behold Jesus, a word that we don't hear very often, to behold him, to linger with him, to stare at him, to marinate with Jesus. I love that, that picture of, are we spending time with Jesus? We read our Bibles and pray not to check a box so that we know more facts about him. Facts and theology, of course, important. But we read our Bibles and pray and try to gather with other believers like this because we want to experience him. We want to know him better. Jesus, or God wants us to listen to Jesus because we're prone to forget. There's a lot of noise out there. So many, like our cell phones just being distracted, social media. I mean, just turn off your phone for 15 minutes, you know, and spend some time with the Lord. I think that that can be so helpful because myself included, I'm probably the worst at this. I'm so prone to forget. I'm so prone to wander. So let's linger, let's behold Jesus, let's stare at him, listen to him because we're prone to forget. And then the last thing is just this idea that the transfiguration and revelation is God's doing. It's not our own effort. That these experiences with God, it's not a, it's not a recipe, it's not a formula. This isn't about getting our act together, cleaning up our life, finding the perfect couch, buying that couch, sitting in that spot, spinning around four times, and then God will have this amazing experience for you. It's not like that. We know that. We, we hunger after those experiences that this is God's deal. God initiates towards us. He reveals himself to us, and we're simply there to respond and to react to him. I want to close out our time with uh, an illustration that starts in Luke chapter 23. In Luke's gospel, he records as Jesus is being crucified, uh, a criminal on either side of Jesus. And one of the criminals heaps insults on Jesus, kind of joins in with the crowd and mocks him. And, but the other criminal um, has a humble heart and displays faith. And he says, you know, like, we, we deserve, speaking to the other criminal, we deserve to die because we've, we're criminals. This one, Jesus, this man, like, he hasn't done anything wrong. He doesn't deserve to die. And then the criminal turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And Jesus profoundly and beautifully says, very truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a story that kind of spins off from that that's theologically incorrect. Just uh, Luke 23 is in the Bible, that's correct. But this story is incorrect that I want to end our time with. Uh, the story goes that that criminal who displayed faith is kind of in line to get into heaven. And about a quarter mile down the, you know, down the corridor there, there's a, an angel, a guard, kind of with a clipboard checking people in. So he's waiting in line to get into heaven. And so the criminal is making small talk with the people around him. And, um, you know, what's your name, where you're from, that kind of thing. 
And a man asks him and says, uh, hey, so what, what, what church do you go to? Catholic, Presbyterian, Baptist, you know, kind of what's your church background? And the criminal, the man says, uh, I've never been to church before. I don't have a church background. And the guy's like, oh, wow, okay, so you're one of those like spiritual but not religious, one of those new agers, you know, like, okay, fine, fine. He said, well, let me, let me ask you, like, what, uh, what's your favorite Bible verse? And uh, the criminal, the man says, I don't have a favorite Bible verse. And the, the man says, well, sometimes it's hard to pick just one, but give me your top three. Maybe we have one of them in common. And the man says, I don't have a favorite Bible verse because I've never read the Bible before. Actually, I don't, don't even know a Bible verse. I don't know any of them. And the man's like absolutely flabbergasted. He's like, you've never been to church? You've never read the Bible? Kind of starts to call over some other people. Hey, Tina, Doug, get a load of this guy. You know, like never been to church, never read his Bible. Who, where's this guy get off? Who does he think he is? Then finally, the man says, well, certainly you've been a good person, right? Like, you've never been to church, never read your Bible. And by this time, there's like a little crowd that's gathered. Certainly you're a good person, right? At least tell me that, please. You have to have been a good person, right? And the criminal man says, ah, sheepishly, you know, like, honestly, like, I was a terrible person. I was a criminal. I was a liar, a cheat, and a steal. And the crowd is like absolutely incredulous at, at this moment of like, well, who do you think you are? How dare you? Like, what do you think you're doing here? What makes you think you can get into heaven? And the criminal, the man, kind of takes a slow, deliberate breath. And he says, you know, uh, the man on the middle cross, he invited me. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. And, uh, you know, I think there's, there's two types of people in the room here today, maybe even a spectrum, two types of people. There's folks who have a really long resume, been in church a lot of times, know a lot of verses, know a lot about God, have done a lot of good things and have not done a lot of bad things. And maybe in some kind of darker, more prideful moments, come to a place where it's like, man, I deserve heaven. I deserve God's love. Look at me. Look at how good I am. Look how long my resume is. Then on the other end of the spectrum, I wonder if there's people in here this morning that feel like they have a really short resume. And if they're honest, maybe they're a little bit embarrassed coming into church. Because everybody else kind of has the laundry list of things that they've accomplished and done and they feel like, man, I have a really short resume. God and I aren't on great terms. I haven't been to church in a while. This is my first time. I can't remember the last time I read my Bible and I'm not that good of a person. And maybe in some darker, more vulnerable moments, you think I don't belong. God will never accept me. I'll never belong here. God will never want to be in a relationship with me. Here's what I love and what I think is just the essence of the gospel is that the cross of Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. The cross, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is a great equalizer. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. What matters is what Jesus has done and how you respond to what I think is the most important question you could ever ask yourself. What do you make of this one, Jesus? Who is he? Do you know him? Not just know about him. Do you know him? And will you follow him? Let me pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for this church family. Thanks for a chance to be together this morning. I thank you that you love us, that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you for the transfiguration and just how you took your disciples away to get a glimpse of your radiance and your beauty. I pray that each and every person in here today would get a glimpse of who you really are, that you would reveal yourself to them in a profound way where they would know that you're the incarnate God, Lord, that you stand alone, that your way is the way of the cross and the way to resurrection God, we hunger for that day where you will make all things new. We see so much brokenness and pain in the world around us in our own lives. Lord, and we hunger for that day. Thank you for loving us. I thank you that the basis of our salvation isn't in how long our resume is, 
but the basis for our salvation is that you, the man on the middle cross, invites us, and through a relationship with you, saying yes to you, gives us the basis that we can come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.